0: We'll be in Romans today, chapter 12, in the first eight verses, familiar verses to us, Romans 12, 1 through 8. But to begin to consider three quotes. From Einstein, In theory, theory and practice are the same. In practice, they are not. From Da Vinci, He who loves practice without theory is like a sailor who boards the ship without a rudder and compass and never knows where he may cast. And thirdly, from most pastors, all theology is practical and all practice is theological. (laughs) The passage that we read today will cause us to consider both theoretical and practical ideas in the Christian life. The theoretical, of course, teaches the why of something. It helps us see the panorama of a subject, the context of the whole. We need to see the big picture and what's happening. This is why school and training of all kinds is vital. It gives us language and a depth of knowledge from those who have experience that then can guide us with what we do with the material. Practice is just as important. There are certain skills we can only learn and know by doing. Knowledge about something takes us only to a certain point. We have to interact in real life so we can see if what we glean, when we gain our own experience, we can then teach others our own theory of why something is so. In this part of Romans, Paul is suddenly switching from a long teaching discourse on Christianity, the theory of what it means to live it out, the practice. He's teaching in the first 11 chapters is the most complete theological statement on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Delivered in a pastoral manner, Covers a wide range of topics, from salvation to assurance through faith, grace, judgment, and righteousness. And he does it all through the lens of God's work from the beginning of creation, culminating in Christ, and giving a picture of the end times. It's a lot to take in, right, for those of us who've read Romans. But generations of lives have been changed and reoriented from reading Romans because it contains so many verses about how we know him. What we study today is the very beginning of Paul's practical teaching, the discussion in the letter Paul knows he cannot leave his readers with simply a bunch of information, letting them figure out what to do with it. So on our lives, we need both the theoretical and the practical because both inform the other. Most of Paul's letters have both a strong theology and an application section. So listen to what it says. In Paul, we see not only the first flowering of Christian theological reflection on topics which have remained central from that day to now, Christology, soteriology, eschatology, and so on. We see also, and at a deeper level, the reason why such theological reflection was necessary in the first place, and the reason why it remains necessary in the church ever afterwards. My central case is that paulology to be the necessary task of the church if it was to be the church. As we see Paul making a switch here from theory to practice, I want us to focus in on the fact that both utilize our mind. It is the mind that ultimately decides what we will do after we have digested the information necessary to act. Of course, we know God with all we are. But in this passage, Paul is helping the church with what it means to have faith. And as he does, he is exhorting us to use our minds. Walking with God is something we have to continue to decide if that is what we want to do. And passages like this know what is involved in that choice. So hear now the word of the Lord from Romans 12, verses 1 through 8. I appeal to you, therefore, and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds, so that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly than you ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and not all the members have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually we are members one of another. We have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, prophecy in proportion to faith, ministry in the teacher in teaching, the exhorter in exhortation, the giver in generosity, the leader in diligence, the compassionate in cheerfulness. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, we ask that you would enliven our minds by the power of your spirit. Amen. Paul wrote this book to the believers in Rome for a couple of reasons. In a practical sense, he wanted to tell this group who had been his plans to visit them, and he wanted them to prepare for his trip by praying. More importantly, of course, he wanted to give a detailed statement of the gospel so churches could use it to offer salvation to others. In fact, many people in the church today have found the Roman road of verses that lead people to Christ. Paul did not know this audience personally, but that objectivity has made it possible, I think, for its clarity to shape the church for all. In this passage Paul helps the church to understand how to live out the gospel he has just articulated. Being a Christian is about what we think and how that thinking then informs our actions. So he encourages us regularly to know God's mercy, to present our whole selves to God, to be changed by God, and to be humble as we use our gifts. So we see first how Paul encouraged to know God's mercy. In fact, the whole appeal here comes from the mercy of the Lord. Paul sees it as the motivating factor of our life with Christ. All of us are motivated by something in our lives. What makes us change our habits? If we're going to change our way of life, for fitness or in finances or in our relationships. There has to be something that finally causes to decide to choose differently. Paul understands the mercy of the, of the Lord because he himself was changed by it. So he appeals to those who are growing in the faith, which is all of us, to always view our hidden lives in Christ through the lens of God's mercy that we always see our life in Christ through God's love for us. God made a decision, passion, and that mercy causes us to trust him. Mercy is grace, of course, when justice demands punishment. It's not emotion, it's action. And God's pattern of mercy begins in the Old Testament and provides the shape for what is to come in Christ It's an intrinsic quality of God, expressed at different times. Mercy is the center of the law. Mercy is the center of the problems and the judges and Christ. We see God's mercy in every action with humanity, even the difficult ones. It's the enduring reality of our life as believers. Mercy is the basis for both what we believe to be true about God and how our beliefs get expressed. So how have you experienced God's mercy in your life? Is it what motivates you to make and how you spend time with him? When you invite others to know him or to hear your story, do you tell of his mercy? If it's not mercy that draws you to the Lord, what is it? Because God longs to draw you close with his love. We see next how Paul encourages us to present our whole selves to God. His wording is that we would give our living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, and he calls it our spiritual form of worship. There are two things I want to point out here. One is the notion of sacrifice. In the Old Testament, an animal was used as an atonement, of course, so people who were sinful or unclean could be made right with God. The essence of the sacrifice was not the offering. It was the life that was given in exchange to make the person right again. Paul uses this language intentionally because he's making a contrast between what has been done and what we are to do. Since Christ's work on the cross takes care of our sin, Paul is saying you don't have to do that, but you still should choose to present your bodies as a sacrifice, as an act of worship. This brings us to a second thing to notice here. He's asking us to present our bodies. That's an interesting word, isn't it? What seems simple, though, I think is very deep because the body represents so much. It's the vehicle that God made for us to go through life, it's the center of all we do, it's the place where He lives in us. Jesus came in a body. He lived and worked in one. He took all of our pain and sin in his body. When we remember his sacrifice, we eat bread that represents his body. The church, his people, are his body. So when Paul tells us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, it means more than maybe it seems at the outset because the notion of body... And all that that means is tied in to our experience and our identity and all that we know about God. So presenting our bodies is our worship. And here, our spiritual. Spiritual means reasonable. So Paul is saying, your spiritual form, you're reasonable with your mind. Worship is not something that you just do then on Sunday morning or in daily times with the Lord. Worship is serving God all the time, with all you are. The decisions we make every day, and how we work, and how we play, and how we rest, all of it matters. Our attitudes reflect giving God. It's the whole of our lives and actions, which the body led by the mind is the, is the main form of expression. So how is your body being presented to God? as a spiritual form of worship, as an offering. That's something I really want us to think about. In this act of offering, we see the third choice Paul gives us, and that is to be changed by God. As we grow and change, will with those around us, or will we allow ourselves to be transformed by God himself? This is a question that all of us All of us who understand who the Lord is has to answer. Last fall, we went up to Seattle for a wedding for a dear friend of ours from college. I was performing the wedding, but for the rehearsal, I went on my own so Mark and Olivia could have fun downtown. The catch was that the wedding was a beautiful location, but it was about an hour outside the city. As Mark helped me to get ready to go to the rehearsal, we put the address of the destination into my phone. And taking off, I heard the impersonal drone of the woman tell me where to go. In 100 feet, turn right. Great. We're together. Everything's going to be just fine. Along the way, I saw an office supply store. And I needed to stop because my folder had broken. And I needed a new one. As I resumed my journey, I go with a different application for the directions, one that has the British guy in my phone. <laughs> the way was getting a bit trickier now, and I didn't want to get lost. At one intersection, as the man told me where to turn, all of a sudden I heard the impersonal drone of the woman totally contradicting him. (laughs) Because I had started my directions on another app without first turning uh, the other one off. Brilliant, Colleen, just brilliant. So now I'm in, I have no place to stop, and which one was which anyway? I got afraid that if I turned one off, that both would turn off, and then I wouldn't have any voice at all. So... The guy says, Turn right, which I did. And all of a sudden, the woman, which I know was a louder voice than before, said, Make a U turn immediately. (laughs) What? They literally kept talking over one another, and I had to choose which one to follow. Now, I could story as I read Paul's words here. Don't be conformed, be transformed. Listen to the voice of God, not the other clamoring ones for your attention. Years ago, of course, I would have charted out my own course with a paper map. Figuring out which way made which sense to go. Maybe I would have talked to my friend and listened to the specific directions she knew well. Now we punch in an address and hope that we get where we need to go. Hoping that the apps don't lead us in a circle, which has happened to me, or to a deserted parking lot, which has also happened to me. (laughs) Paul is emphatic. Don't conform to the world. Make an informed decision about who you are and who you should listen to on the road. Where are you going? So to whom or to what do you conform? Where's your weakness when you conform? See, we start imitating very early in life. Very early we teach our children, say hello, say bye bye. And they do it. So we set up our kids and all of us along the way for always looking to other people for how it is that we should act and how we should be and what we should do. And all of us conform in some way, altering how we think or what we look like or how we act or what we say because of the influence we admire or because someone is insistent that we do so. So where is your place of conforming? Remember, this is all about intention. It's a question of the will. And Paul says that the renewing of our minds is the prize. The the word transform here is the the verb metamorpho, which is the same word to describe the transfiguration of Jesus. All of a sudden, Jesus' whole body was ablaze, spectacular sight, and he was a totally different being on the inside and out. God's power in that moment changed him from being part human to his true self and glory. Paul is telling us that the same power is what changes us, what changes and gives transformation to our souls. So why settle for conforming to someone or something around us when God wants to uniquely work in us to make us more like him, Thaising that Christianity is not just a philosophy. It's an opportunity for the one who created us to recreate us at the core of our being. Paul says that all of this happens so that we might know God's will. All the time we ask ourselves, what does God want? What is God's will for my life? And Paul is saying that we'll know his will more when we allow him to change us. So there's something tied in here with the transformation. Somehow we're able to know more of God's will for us when we allow him to change us. It's a matter of discernment. And Paul says that will happen more as you relinquish more of who you are to him. So when we're trying to figure out what God's will is, and we can't hear it, and we can't discern it, I think maybe a good place to start would be to look and see where it is that we're conforming. If that conforming is taking us away from hearing what God wants to say to us. Lastly, Paul encourages us to be humble as we use our gifts. This is a valuable lesson that Paul is giving us. He says, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to, but think of yourself with sober judgment. Again, Paul is encouraging us to use our minds in all seriousness to consider who we really are. Part of it takes humility because it's acting in a way that indicates that we think more about God than we do ourselves. So how is it that you think about yourself? Do you find yourself puzzled because others don't think that you're as great as you think you are? Or do you look down on yourself when others around say how much they like you and how great they think that you're... Paul says God will give us faith that will help us to think about this. This is great counsel from Paul because it reminds us how interconnected we are. We're gifted from God, he says, and we have to think of ourselves in that way. But what keeps our pride in check is how we know we're all part of the body We serve in the capacity that God chooses and we do so in the community of faith where everyone also is living. And at the same time, everyone is working on what it means to be changed from the inside out like we are. It's brilliant in its simplicity, but also in how complete it is. Dependent on God, interdependent on one another, we're always connected. Paul then lists seven gifts which he encourages us to use for the common good. These are gifts of speaking and serving. They're not an exhaustive list. They go along with the other lists that he has given. God is the source, and we exercise our gifts as part of the whole. So are you a theoretical kind of Christian or a practical kind of Christian? We need both. We need to do both and keep our minds engaged in learning and in application. What are you currently listening to or reading that is helping you keep sharp in what you believe? How are you trying new practices that your belief so that you're more dependent on the Lord? The church must practice good theology where it can, for this is how we stay alert to who God is, to where he's working, and what he is doing in us. So let us continue to use the minds that God gave us to engage with him at all levels. Let's pray.